This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Good to be together. My name is Craig. If I've not uh, met you, I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we are continuing to work through a series um, in the book of 1 Corinthians. And between now and July 2nd, uh, there will not be a Sunday that will not be a fascinating topic. Uh, The next several passages uh, through chapter 14 are, they are interesting, and uh, today is no exception. So if you turn to uh, 1 Corinthians 11, chapter 11, and we're going to look at verses 2 through 16, Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat in front of you. So you could uh, look under the seat in front of you, pull out a Bible, turn to page 558, because you'll want to track with this one for sure, and you can just read along with us. And, uh, and, and see uh, how we seek to understand and apply the passage. And if you don't own a Bible, just take that one with you. That's our, uh, that's our gift to you. So let me pray and we will jump in. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you today for your word to us. We thank you that it is always true. We thank you that it is always relevant. We thank you that it is always life-changing. And we pray today that as we read this passage, you would remove any blinders that we might have. Uh, Lord, we lay aside our presuppositions and we ask you to just speak to us, speak truth to us, lead us, direct us, change us by your scripture and help us to see the glory and beauty of your word and most of all, the glory and beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians 11 Verse 2, this is God's word. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man." For man was not made for for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. It it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice nor do the churches of God. 
Welcome to Grace Church. <laughs> for our first time guests, we'd like to say thank you for being with us. Um, scholar Craig Blomberg wrote, this passage is probably the most complex, controversial, and opaque, meaning hard to understand, opaque of any text of comparable length in the New Testament. So what do you do with a text that's more complex, more controversial, more opaque, difficult to understand than any text in the New Testament? Well, you just jump right in and dig in and say, hey, this is God's word and we are uh, submitted to God's word. I mean, you may hear this being read, you may have not heard this before and you may think, what, what in the world uh, is this passage about? You might be thinking, I've always heard that Paul in particular in the Bible in general uh, have an oppressive view of women and this pretty much confirms it right here. This confirms all my suspicions of biblical misogyny. Or maybe you're slower to draw a conclusion and you're thinking, I'm not sure what that means. I hope you know. And uh, it sure seems foreign and very confusing. Help us, pastor, help us know what this is all about. Well, before I dig into the particulars, and we will dig into the particulars, but before I do that, let me just remind you what, what we always do when we come to scripture, and that is we must always consider context. And as I studied, I read a lot about this passage, I, f I found very few references to context. Most people jump in immediately and say, what's a head covering and why? And, and there's very little about context, but I think context is vital to see the big picture because Paul for the last three chapters, if you've been tracking with us, has been speaking about loving other people and willingly laying down one's rights for the good of others. That's what he's been talking about. He models esteeming other people. For the previous three chapters, he has modeled respecting other people. And so he says, if eating meat offered to idols would in any way hinder my friend, I'll never eat meat again. That's what he said in chapter 8, laying down his prerogative for the good of another. He reports that he serves the church for free, even though he justifiably could be paid. He does that because he wants people to hear about Jesus unhindered, to hear the good news. He's, he's sacrificing for the good of the church, laying down his rights. In the next passage we're about to look at next week, he advocates for the poor. And he calls the rich who have food to share their food at the communion rather than shutting out the poor. That's what he's going to talk about next. In the next chapter, chapter 12, he will elevate the so-called lesser spiritual gifts, the gifts that are given to people and are viewed as marginal gifts. He will raise those gifts to a place of honor. In chapter 13, he will highlight that love always places other people first. That's what he will talk about in the love chapter. So, so to think that out of the blue, in the midst of a passage like this, in the midst of these six chapters, that Paul would just sort of drop 14 verses of his misogyny campaign celebrating chauvinism and demeaning women that, that would not only misunderstand this text, but that would misunderstand the, the tenor of the entire six chapters in which it is found, in which it is embedded. Throughout these six chapters, he promotes the marginalized. 
The person with a weak conscience, he loves, serves, and honors. The poor he makes a place for. Those whose gifts leave them unappreciated, he shines a spotlight on. So is he now addressing women who were in many ways marginalized in the first century culture, to be sure? Is he now celebrating their marginalization by sort of piling on a series of oppressive commandments to put them even lower and lower under their man's foot? No way. I mean, think about the overall flow. That would stand out if that's what's going on here. That would stand out, stick out, completely out of context from everything that he is talking about. Secondly, regarding context, before we, we look at this a little bit further, I want to say we are entering a lengthy section on worship. So the next passage is on the Lord's Supper, and then there's three chapters on spiritual gifts. So he's not offering a thorough theology of all that the Bible teaches on gender. Because of that, I'm going to go back and look at Genesis 1 and 2 in just a minute. He doesn't give us everything about what the Bible says about marriage or gender. He is rather addressing a particular issue that has surfaced when wives pray and prophesy in the worship service. That's what verse 4 says. Verse 4, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head covered dishonors her head. Now, just a contextual comment. People typically react very quickly to head coverings and ignore the fact that Paul coming out of a Jewish culture is advocating something completely unheard of in any synagogue, that a woman would lead men in prayer, that a woman would stand up and bring an impression from the Lord, a prophecy, a prophetic word, to males in a worship service, completely unheard of in a hierarchical society. So the very context is there's arisen a problem around a very socially progressive Uh, a very socially progressive practice, women leading in some way through prayer or prophetic word, contributing uh, into the worship service. As a matter of fact, the whole context is built on the liberty that came on the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out and the new covenant was enacted, Peter stands up and says, this is the sign that the new covenant has dawned upon us. What is the indicator? Well, one of them is Acts 2.18. We know that the new age of the Spirit, the new covenant has dawned because your sons and your daughters will prophesy. And that's exactly what is happening here. So just in context, it's helpful to look and say, what's happening in six chapters? Paul is advocating, elevating, and honoring the marginalized, making a place for them and loving them. That's the first observation. The second observation is that the whole controversy about head coverings comes encircling a practice that was incredibly progressive in the culture to which he writes that a woman was praying and prophesying. Now, let's wade into the text. Having said that, I just want to build those cultural, I'm sorry, those contextual borders because I think they help us from just leaping off into the, uh, you know, sort of into the ditch of uh, misunderstanding the passage. Uh, My approach on this passage is going to be to draw out the big themes of the passage, and here's why. Whenever we come to a passage that has some parts 
that are clear and some parts that are obscure. You major on the clear parts and you minor on the obscure parts. That is, you, you sort of put your foot down and, and dig in on what is clear biblically, principally, and on pra- certain practices where things are less clear, I will be less, I mean, I will be more tentative where things are less clear. And the issue here is that at, at, at play are some his, uh, cultural practices that are foreign and, and I would say even irrelevant to modern Western culture. So there's some practices here that don't make sense in our culture, but the principles absolutely are transcultural and make sense to us. And so we want to look at the principle and realize that principles endure, but practices at times can vary from culture to culture and age to age. So here's what I think the overall principle that's being expressed in this passage is. That God created men and women equal and distinct. And we honor him when we reflect both of those realities. Especially we honor him in worship, in our gathered worship, when we reflect those realities. That men and women are created by God equal and yet distinct uh, with regard to their role. Distinct certainly in marriage and in the church. So I'm going to take those two ideas and flesh them out from the text. The first one is that men and women are created equal. Where do you see that in the text? Well, look at verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now, this section is about the distinction between the husband and the wife. To be sure, there's a, distinct, uh, there's a distinction being made between them. But consider where he goes here. He makes his argument from the distinction between Christ and God. So the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. God the Father, that is. Christ is God as well, but he's speaking here about God the Father. So what is taught throughout the Bible, as well as throughout the church's history, is this, that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, who's not mentioned in this verse, but the Father and the Son and the Spirit are equal in being and in essence. It's very important when he talks about the distinction between man and woman, or uh, this really is about husband and wife, when he talks about the distinction between the two, that he reflects on the Trinity, that he goes to the Trinity. And if we know anything about the triune God is that it is that Father, Son, and Spirit are equal in being, they are equal in essence, and they are different in role. But Father, Son, and Spirit, neither is, uh, none is superior to the others. In terms of their godness, if we could say that, they are equal in being. One is not more valuable than the other. And in the same way, men and women are equal in being, in essence. And he points to the example of, the, of God being the head of Christ. God and Christ have differing roles, but they are certainly equal. They are both God. Secondly, he makes an argument from creation. The Genesis account is running in the background of this entire passage. Genesis 1 and 2 are kind of the background of the passage. Look at verse 8. Verse 8, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. He's talking about Genesis 2 there. We'll look at that in a second, but he's talking about Uh, The fact that God puts Adam to sleep and makes uh, Eve from one of his ribs. So woman was made from man. So Paul's making arguments here. Some of the arguments are made from creation and not from what culture is like in first century 
Corinth. So he, he refers there, and then in verse 12, he says the same thing, for as woman was made for man, so man is now born of woman. So again, he is referring back to creation. And when we go back to creation and see the origin, not in first century Corinth, not in 21st century uh, USA, American culture. But if we go back to the beginning of Scripture, we will see something about the equality of creation. And I want to point to this because, again, it's running in the background of this passage. It informs all that Paul says in the passage. So Genesis 1, Genesis 1 says this, Genesis 1, 26, about the creation of man and woman. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So here's what's very interesting about this. First of all, we see God's triune being, God's trinity, referred to again here. Let us make man in our, after our likeness. So God, Father, Son, and Spirit, is creating humanity, man, after uh, God's likeness. In verse 27, it says he created them male and female in his own image. So what's being communicated there is that man and woman are equal image bearers of God. Their their image bearing status is equal. They're equal in dignity. They're equal in value. They're equal in worth. They're equal in their calling to exercise dominion over God's creation. And again, they reflect, man and woman reflect the Trinity. He points to the Trinity, let us make man in our image. The God who is one person, one being, one essence, I'm sorry, one in essence and being, three in person, Father, Son, and Spirit. The God who loves the Father and Son and Spirit, love one another. And so he, com- he creates humanity in his image. Thirdly, not only from the Trinity and from creation, both image bearers, man and woman. Thirdly, there's an equality emphasized in this passage because the passage says that men and women are interdependent. Verse 11, nevertheless, in the Lord, <clears throat> woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman, For as a woman was made for man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. So Eve came from Adam, but every man since then has come from a woman. He is highlighting that there is a mutuality and an interdependence between the genders. Eve was made from Adam, but since that time, All men, as I said, came from women. Men and women need each other at a basic level. Verses 11 and 12 highlight interdependence, meaning that neither man nor woman is independent, but men need women, women need men. And in the marriage relationship in particular, there is a mutuality between them. There is a fundamental equality in nature, being, and essence, in dignity and worth. And we see that from the Trinity, We see that from creation, and we see that from the mutuality of these verses. So men and women are created equally. 
Secondly, men and women are distinct. And it seems like this is the issue that Paul's driving home. That's the problem. Everything I've just said to you, I think the Corinthians have that down and maybe more so, maybe more. I mean, Paul taught in Galatians, there's neither male in Christ, there's neither male or female, slave or free, Greek or Jew. So that there is this, there is this redeemed unity among men and women. And so they seem to be clear on the equality issue. I mean, women are praying and are prophesying after all, but it seems that they are blurring the God designed gender distinctions, which are also found in creation. So the creation story tells us two things. It tells us that men and women are created equal in dignity, value, and worth as co-image bearers, as equal image bearers of God, but it also tells us that they are distinct. So if we go to Genesis 2, the next chapter, in verse 18, we read this. Adam is alive, he is alone, and God says in verse 18 to 18, the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So God creates someone to come alongside to join life with Adam, a helper fit for him. Her name is Eve. And this is how it happens in verse 21, a few verses down after he sees all of the animals and names them. Then in verse 21, it says, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he, he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So in the first chapter, we get God created man, male and female, equal image bearers of God. In the second chapter, we, we have Adam by himself. It's not good that he's alone. God creates a helper fit for him. The word fit literally means, and this may be in the footnote. Uh, I, I can't remember. I already turned back from that passage, but I think in the footnote of the ESV, it, it says fit means corresponds to him. So God created someone not identical to Adam, not just like Adam, but someone that fit, someone that corresponded with Adam so that they may be joined in one flesh. Now there's certainly something anatomical there. There's an anatomical unity that they fit together. But what he's talking about is much more than the sexual relationship when he says that man and wife fit together. It means they correspond. They correspond to live as one flesh together. The gender differences, this is so important. The gender differences are found in chapter two, not in chapter three at the fall. Gender differences don't come after sin enters the world. They don't come as a result of the fall. Gender differences are designed by God before the fall. What happens after the fall is that those differences become means of man and men and women sinning against one another. So sin comes afterwards, but the, the, but the creation design, which is good, shows gender distinction prior to sin entering the world. So the husband and wife, distinct in their role, Eve is created to be Adam's helper. They say, wow. I mean, that sounds a little demeaning, doesn't it, to women? Well, uh, it is not, the, the role of helper is not an inferior role. Uh, God brings 
Eve to Adam because she has strengths and she has gifts that he does not have. He needs her. And in fact, the person most frequently referred to as a helper in the Bible is certainly not Eve. It is God. If you, please don't do this now, but if you afterwards will go to your, whatever your Bible program is and search the word help, you will be astounded at how many references it is to God helping people. God is my help. The matter of fact, the Bible says that God is our helper. He is our helper. And yet God is not inferior to anyone. God is omnipotent and yet describes what he does for us as help. So it doesn't mean that she's over him like God is over us. I'm not making that argument. But I am saying it's not inferior that she brings help to her husband, for the Lord is our help. It is a description of a strength that she brings that he needs. She is created to be his helper before the fall. That's not a judgment. That's not a judgment. That judgment comes later. Well, what is the, her husband's role if she's a helper? It doesn't say, in gen, right there it doesn't use the term, but it does in the passage we're looking at. So no, let's go back to 1 Corinthians, verse 3. But you, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So equal in looking at the Trinity, equal in looking at creation, equal in looking at interdependence, but a distinction in role. She, Genesis 2, created to be his helper. He created, Genesis, uh, 1 Corinthians eleven three 3, to be her head. A term which typically means, refers to authority or leadership. The husband is given a leadership role that requires him to take initiative in leading, in serving, in caring for his wife, who is his equal. Well, doesn't that denigrate the wife again? Is, doesn't this sound like this is denigrating to the wife? Well, look at Paul's comparison, God's comparison. Christ, I mean, uh, every, head of every man is Christ, head of wife is her husband. The head of Christ is God. Is Jesus in any way denigrated by having God as his head? Is Jesus lesser than? Is Jesus unworthy? Is Jesus looked down upon because he has God as his head? Is Jesus less valuable because he has God? That's the comparison Paul makes about the relationship. He is equal to the Father, and yet Jesus voluntarily submits to his Father, and that is his greatness. If you read Philippians 2, you'll find that is the greatness of Jesus demonstrating in that expression. We learn something more about the husband's role, this term het, in Ephesians 5. In Ephesians 5, Paul writes, for the husband is head of the wife as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So there we see that the role of head is to be one loving of his wife as Christ loves the church. The husband is compared, his headship, if we could say, is compared to Christ. Christ is to exercise leadership, the husband's to exercise leadership in the way that Christ does, which is sacrificial, which is loving, which is death, dying. The husband is to love his wife as Christ loves the church. Now, she is to be like Jesus in this verse, verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 11. She's to be like Jesus who joyfully responds to God as his head. God is the head of Christ. So she is to respond 
like, she's to be like Jesus and respond to God like Jesus does to God. He is to be like Jesus, and he is to love her like Christ loves the church. So the ideal is that everybody is to be like Jesus, living lovingly, humbly, sacrificially for the other. This is the idea of the marriage, equal in value, dignity, and worth, differing in role. This passage is not about how all women relate to all men, but how one particular woman relates to one particular man, a married couple, how she is to respond to her husband. It says nothing about the general uh, role of women and the general role of men. This is speaking of marriage, the husband who prays, the wife who prays. It says the wife who prays or prophesies with her head covered. So it's, it's speaking of a marriage role here. The husband is to use his role to honor his wife, to take initiative of his life, to care for and serve, to treat his wife like Jesus treats us. We're his bride, the church. He is to treat her as Christ treats the church. Many people react, understandably so, to this kind of, this line of thinking that's in the scripture because they've seen this be abused by men. They've seen this be a means of a man taking a verse and out of context and taking advantage of his wife. The husband is never to use his role to take advantage of his wife. He absolutely is, this is never an endorsement or a permission to, to abuse her in any way, verbally, emotionally, certainly not physically, in any way. That is absolutely forbidden throughout all of Scripture. And praise God, we live in a, in, in a society where there are civil authorities that, have, um, uh, that are delegated by God to, uh, to bring punishment to any husband who would treat his wife that way. The church can discipline and remove him. The government can, um, can imprison him. So anyone who does that, who would be physically abusive with his wife, it, it is wrong. And not only is that evil, but let me just say, it is doubly, triply, a thousand times evil to harm someone else and to do it in the name of Jesus. Any Christian man that would say, submit to me, and then would treat his wife lacking compassion with harshness, with anger, with emotional abuse, or, or worse, physical, anything like that, and would do that in the name of God, uh, that is doubly reprehensible. So people who think that this means uh, you know, that, that, that God is, uh, Christ is the head of man, man is head of his wife, God, uh, uh, the head of Christ is God, that thinks that that is any ticket for uh, some kind of, uh, any pass for some kind of harm to a wife has, has uh, well, they've just not understood the scripture and they've not read the story of Jesus. Read the life of Jesus and see how he treats his church. And, and look at the cross and see how he treats his church. That's, that's what the husband is called to. But I just want to make that very clear because I, I think there can be a concern that this kind of an idea, you know, automatically leads to abuse. It should not. That's a misreading and a misapplication uh, of the text. He's to treat her like Jesus, his bride. And when you see that kind of relationship, there is a beauty and a glory that is never demeaning to a wife. This kind of love is not demeaning to a wife. It is ennobling. It is uplifting. It is honoring. It is preferring her to himself. That's what Jesus does. He prefers us at the cost of his own life. 
So these distinct roles reflect the Trinity. They're rooted in creation. And so they are transcultural. They're transcultural. They're above culture and beyond culture because we look at the creation and see the roles. However, men and women express their distinctiveness, husbands and wives express their distinctiveness uh, in differing ways in different cultures. And for the Corinthian culture, that meant hair length and head coverings. In Corinth in the first century, married women typically wore some type of head covering. It was a symbol that a woman was married. That's why he's saying when wives a prayer prophesy with their head uncovered. That's why the language is there. It may have been a shawl that she wore. Uh, some scholars say it may have been some kind of a hood that she wore, um, but it was some symbol that she was a married woman in a very promiscuous society. Um, people, we've talked about this in Corinth, in, in the middle of the first century in Greece, people married, men married women to have children, and they were obligated to one another, but it really was a very uh, male-dominated society because then he could sleep around, so he'd have multiple mistresses. He would go down to the temple and sleep with temple prostitutes and stuff. That would be acceptable in Greek culture, but his wife, his shawled, head-covered wife would be devoted to, uh, you know, devoted to him. So the, the culture of the day was... Uh, was bad by, by, any, by any definition. Um, but there was a sign that she was not available. A woman was not available if she had a head covering. She was married. And it may be, now I'm speculating because we're getting into cultural things that are different today. It may be that the ladies in the church were praying and prophesying. And as they were doing so, well, that's for sure they were, they were deciding to remove their normal head coverings Uh, Additionally, they may have been unbraiding their hair even and letting it hang loose because there's hair discussion at the end. So they normally in culture, they'd have the updo thing going. Now they've got their, their hair loose. They're removing their head coverings. And why would they be doing that? Well, speculation, it may be because they knew they were free in Christ, that this is a new day and the age of the spirit has come and we're free to pray and prophesy. So under in a new day, I'm going to remove the, the sign that I am a married woman. I'm going to be free from social convention that distinguished husbands and wives. And Paul is making the point at this point that what one has on one's physical head when praying or prophesying can dishonor what one has or does not have on their head, can dishonor one's spiritual head. So that's what he says in verse four. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Okay, what does that mean? Why is that? Give you the best explanation I've read. my, My real answer is I'm not certain why if a man prays or prophesies with his head covered, it's dishonoring to Christ. But one reason may be that that was the typical practice, and uh, now we're talking pagan, in the pagan temples. I read numbers of sources that said it would be typical for a priest at a pagan temple to take his toga and put it over his head when, when speaking for the gods or when in a prophetic frenzy or, or something like this. And so what could be behind that is saying when a man prays or prophesies and looks pagan in, in doing so, he's dishonoring God. That, that could be what that means. Uh, the other seems to be far more clear in my thinking. Every woman, every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, which is her husband. In other words, if the cultural sign was that one cover one's head, 
so to, to demonstrate one is married and she's in church leading out in prophecy and praying and removing the sign that she is married. That is dishonoring her husband because it is communicating in that culture. It is communicating she's available. It's communicating something that's not true. It's communicating that she is independent and detached and separate, that she's not a married person. The idea of the shaved head could be a picture uh, of the adulterist. In the, Old, in the Old Testament, if a woman was caught in adultery, sometimes her head was shaved. It could be a sign of a shaved head would be a sign of adultery. It could also, some say, that was the sign of a prostitute, that prostitutes shaved their heads in Greek culture. Again, there's lots of speculation about what is going on in Greek culture. If that's true, then what he is saying is, ladies, you are free to pray and prophesy, but don't dishonor your husband by removing the sign of your marriage. Don't look available. And if you want to identify, if you don't want to identify as a wife who is under uh, God's authority, your husband, then you might as well shave your head and look like an adulteress or look like a prostitute. Instead, look like the wife God has called you to be. Don't ignore social custom, which recognizes a gender distinction. So I think that's what's going on there. He's talking about wives and husbands, and I think the wife part is recognize that you are married. Freedom in Christ doesn't mean a blurring of gender distinction. It doesn't mean that everybody is androgynous, and there is no gender distinction, even though we are all equal in Christ. Verse 7, for a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. This is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Again, he is referencing the creation order. Man is created, Adam is created first. Adam is created before Eve comes as as his helper. Adam is created to live for the glory of God. Eve is clearly also created to live for the glory of God. Created in the image of God. He made him male and female in the image of God. So she's a uh, Genesis one twenty seven. She is an equal image bearer before God, but she is born, she is created rather separately, secondly, uh, and she is the glory of man. That is her excellence. Adam is blown away by Eve. She is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Her excellence complements his. Her excellence complements his excellence. She is created to bring him needed help. And as a married woman, she should recognize her complementarity with her equal and wear a head covering. She is equal, but she is complementary complementary to him. This is the right way to say it, sorry. And so in this culture, she should cover her head because of the angels. I have no idea what that means. (laughs) I could give you multiple theories, but the theories are... I mean, there are some whack theories I read about what that means, and I don't feel confident in any of them, but I feel very confident in Genesis 1 and 2 and Ephesians 5, and so I'm going to go with what I think is really clear in the Scripture and something that's a little more obscure. I'm going to say, I don't know, and we have a money-back guarantee here, so if you don't, if that didn't, if I'm not teaching to your satisfaction, uh, there you go. Okay, he then emphasizes equality. We looked at verses 11 and 12. Remember that? The Lord... And the Lord, woman's not independent of man, 
Uh, for as woman is made for man, so man is now born of woman. All things are from God. So there's this interdependence we read about. Then verse 13, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Well, there's, there's a lot of contentiousness around all of these issues, so that's probably a pretty good verse to include in the mix. Um, does it not, he, he refers here now to nature. I think this is a really tricky one. What does he mean by nature? Does he mean by creation, or does he mean something along the lines of the way things naturally are? Just the way things naturally are teach us that long hair is a disgrace for a man, and it is a woman's glory. In other words, does the Bible forbid long hair on men? Um, I, I, here, I'm going to tell you how I understand this. I believe this is a cultural rendering as well. Generally, what naturally seems among most cultures is that generally men have shorter hair to distinguish themselves, and generally women have longer hair. But I want you to consider this. If you're inclined to read this literally as a practice for all times, that any man with long hair, first of all, we have to judge what is long hair. But any man with long hair is dishonoring God. I just would submit this to you, that the godliest men in the entire Old Testament are those who took a Nazarite vow. A Nazarite vow meant no alcohol, no fruit of the vine. You couldn't touch anything dead, which was a sign of, um, you know, that, that was part of uh, remaining ceremonial clean. It was a picture of distance from sin, really, but it was a picture of being ceremonially unclean, of clean. You could touch nothing dead, and you could not cut your hair. So the most radically committed Old Testament men, like Samson, who turned out not to be such a winner after all, but uh, he was, it, it, Samson had long hair. Why? Because he never read Paul? No, because I think in that culture, it, that was an acceptable means uh, of taking a vow where someone could grow their hair long for a purpose of serving the Lord. So that, I think we have to look at the Old Testament when we think about that. And that I'm inclined to read nature as generally the way things are. Um, he says there, even in the passage, um, judge for yourselves. He's saying, in other words, judge for yourselves. I mean, I mean consider this what is reasonable about this? Here's what I think is at the view here. This is what I think is more important. Men should not seek to look like the cultural image of a woman. And women should not seek to look like the cultural image of a man. If you're a Nazarite, you take a Nazarite vow, that may be different. Gender is God's creation. And thus it is a gift. And the gender distinction in marriage is created by God. It's not a social construct. Hairstyles change. Clothing changes. I mean, there's been times in history where men wore dresses. I mean, at this time, a toga pretty much looks like a dress. So there's times where men or, uh, uh, you know, a kilt. So there's times when culturally men wore that kind of thing. There's other times when men wore differently. There's times when women have worn shorter hair, longer hair. But he's saying, generally speaking, that the norm has been that men have had shorter hair, women have longer hair. His point is, there's, there needs to be a, there's a God-created distinction that when you come into the church, he's calling them not to lay that aside. Yes, there's an equality, a celebrated progressive equality in that culture of the day between men and women. But there is a distinction that's glorious as, as the husband cares the, love, the role of a loving sacrificial head and the wife as a loving sacrificial helper to her husband. 
Don't use your freedom. This is what I think he's saying. Don't use your freedom to mute or to hide something that's good. N.T. Wright of this whole passage wrote, the underlying point then seems to be that in worship, it is important for both men and women to be their truly created selves, to honor God by being what they are and not blurring the lines by pretending to be something else. His main point is that in worship, men should follow the dress and hair codes which proclaim them to be male and women the codes which proclaim them to be female. So that's the big picture. That's the big picture. Let's make some application. First of all, I think the application I've been making is an important one to understanding the Bible. Principles endure, cultures change. Somebody knew I was talking about this this Sunday, and so they said, we're just going to look at your wife and, and see if, what she's wearing Sunday on her head. To, we'll know your doctrine. So she's on the front row with her head uncovered. Why is that? I told her to wear one. She said no. No, just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Can we edit that from the tape? <laughs> here's why she's not, and you're free to do what you want, but why, here's why that is, why we would understand it that way. In Western culture, you are not in any way muting your womanhood or your role as a wife if you don't wear a shawl or hood. In our culture, it's meaningless for you to be uh, viewed as a married woman by what you wear on your head. Now, there are plenty of women in our culture that do wear their head covered. I mean, if you go to the mall this afternoon, you will see women wearing head coverings. Here's a principle that I think for the gospel is value. If you were a missionary, if you were a missionary couple in a Muslim culture, it might make sense for the wife to wear a head covering at church because in that culture and to reach those people, uh, it, it, it might communicate something about your marriage relationship. I don't know what all it would communicate in that culture. I'm just saying maybe in that culture, you would say, I don't want to cause confusion and I don't want to look unmarried. So I'm going to embrace the cultural sign of marriage. And if that's the cultural sign, I'm going to do that. So in some cultures, so should you wear a head covering ever today? Maybe in some cultures, but it would be meaningless in Western culture it does not mean you're married if you have a shawl on today. Number two, I think this passage calls us to check our heart. Granted, I did the best I could in the fear of the Lord to take some cultural things and tell you what I think is cultural and what are the enduring principles. People are going to land maybe differently on some of those things. But these kinds of passages check our doctrine of Scripture and expose us expose our hearts to what is our authority. From a Western cultural view, if you look at the, and, and most of us here have a Western cultural worldview, if you look at this text and you say this, I don't like to think of God saying these kinds of things. This sounds regressive, oppressive, misogynistic, patriarchal, demeaning of women. I don't buy into this view that God created men and women equal, but there's any role distinction. There cannot be any role distinction if there is real equality. My view is different than the Bible. I don't, okay, I grant you that's what the text says, but I, I don't really hold that view. I'm a Christian, but I'm, I'm just not going to embrace that view. Here's what I would challenge you with. If you read the Bible and God's truth can never contradict your preferences, your feelings, or your philosophy, then I want to ask you, who is your God? 
If you read the Bible and you are never finding yourself on the other side of the view of the Bible, okay, but you're always saying, well, I like to think of it this way. Whenever you think, I like to think of God this way, we are, I am in da- you're in danger. Whenever we go, I like to think of a God who is, you, you don't have the privilege and right to like to think of God as you like to think of him. God is who he is. We submit to him. And what I find on this one is that matters of sexuality and gender differ between cultures um, and differ between ages. And if believers take their sexual and gender ethics from their culture, we could, we could go into multiple places in the world that would have a different view than, than we do about men and women or that our culture does. Uh, but if we take our view from culture and, and we form our convictions from what around us, what those around us teach. Those around us will change. What they say today will be different in a decade and different in a hundred years. If we do that, we really have no Christian faith. Our ethics must be based on biblical principles, which do not shift culture to culture, though practices may shift. So we need to study and wrestle with these texts. It's fine to say, wow, this is a hard text. I want to believe what's behind it, but I'm really struggling. I respect that. That's fantastic because you're wrestling with the text. This is a hard teaching to understand. I mean, on the surface of it, it almost looks unfair to me as I understand it, but I know God is glorious, so I'm going to keep studying. I want to understand. I want my mind transformed by his thinking. Wonderful. To say I wrestle with these texts is good and godly, but to say that I am the arbiter of what is and is not true sexuality and gender may, may be to make yourself God rather than to submit to God. And the doctrine du jour in the culture has changed and will change, and you can go somewhere else in the world right now where it's different. That is a moving, sinking sand. Number three, gender confusion. This passage calls men and women to present themselves in a way that reflects their created gender. However, some people wrestle, struggle with their biological gender. And those who hold the view that I'm teaching today, which in my conscience I believe is the biblical view, those who hold this view need to be compassionate with those who are struggling in this area. There is no place for a Christian to mock people who wrestle with their gender. There's no place to make fun of a transgender person. I don't know any person who's ever come to Christ because they said the church mocked me and laughed at me and that led me to their Jesus. I've never heard that testimony. I've heard a lot of people say the church mocked me and laughed me and had no place for me and I ran from their Jesus. And they've misunderstood our Jesus Those who struggle with their identity often have no understanding why that is. There are people who say they just feel like their whole life, like they're a mistake, like their body doesn't match who they think they are gender-wise. In some cases, not all, but in some cases, folks who wrestle with gender identity have been abused, grievously as a child, abused, and there's there's a level of confusion that they could have because of that. In most cases, when people wrestle with their gender identity, I think the last place that they think they will find help is the church. And that's because the conservative Christian church has been very clear on our position about bathrooms and not very clear about our position on Jesus Christ who loves and saves sinners. 
You can have a position on both. Just make sure the position about Jesus who's compassionate and loves all people and saves them by his grace. Just make sure that's much, much, much louder in your Facebook feed than anything else. We want to be a safe place for people. If you're here a person, if you're here as a person today, you know what I believe the scripture teaches. I just taught you. There's no question about what we believe or what I believe, what the elders here believe about what the scripture teaches about gender. I've just laid it out. However, we understand that people struggle and may not, may not be at the same place and may even have personal issues and you're looking for help. I mean, I would want to communicate that we are seeking to be understanding and compassionate and would want to come alongside you and would want you to let us know, to talk, especially young people, if you're wrestling you're with this issue or you're forming your own kind of identity and you wonder, you, you wrestle, you wonder about same-sex attraction or you wonder about trans, a transgender identity, would you please talk to someone as a young person in the church? And uh, we seek to represent Christ to you to embrace you, to love you, to help you, to come to a, not only a biblical understanding of these things, but also the power by the grace of God to live out who he's created you to be as male and female. Lastly, gender and marriage. I think we can miss really big picture things if we just get caught up on head coverings, which was a very valid point then. But I think there's something for marriages that's really important here. Ask if you're a married person, ask this question, how can I celebrate gender equality and gender distinction in my marriage? You don't wanna just go to one or the other because they're both in the Bible. We got Genesis one, equal image bearers. We got Genesis two, Eve's, Eve's created as helper. We got 1 Corinthians 11 and Ephesians five, uh, the man's to be, a husband's to be loving head. So we want both of these. So first of all, are you celebrating gender equality in your marriage? And here's a question. Am I affirming my spouse as my equal? Don't think that God thinks of you as better than your spouse or superior. Some men think of their wives as less. And if you think of your wife as less than you, uh, you, you need to repent and to affirm her dignity and her worth, and to seek her honor, the Bible would say, above your own. Not treat her as an equal, treat her and honor her as better than yourself. That's 1 Corinthians 13. That's, that's Christ laying down his life. Some women seek to manipulate and control their husbands, look down on their husbands, because they honestly think their husbands are less. So this isn't just a male problem. It's a human problem. Some ladies think their husband's the problem with everything in their marriage and their life. And so you sort of look down upon him and you need to repent and to relate to him, recognizing his dignity and his worth before God, that he's equal to you. He's an equal image bearer to you, especially if you feel like you're spiritually sort of superior to him. You may be more mature, but if you're living with the reality that you're spiritually superior to him and looking down upon him, then you just lost all your maturity points and you're by definition less mature than he is. Self-righteousness is not maturity. So respect him as your equal, not as less than you. So that's the question. How can you respect your spouse and affirm your equality before God as equal image bearer? But how can you also affirm your distinctiveness? And you notice I didn't get into anything like who does what chores. I mean, there's certain things that are sort of gender, tr traditional kind of gender things. Who drives, who does, who writes the checks, who's, who takes out the trash. Who, I, I, didn't, I didn't give any 
gender-specific practices because those practices are something that you have to decide as a couple. You know, you're not affirming all biblical creation just because someone's doing the dishes and someone's, you know, we, we get into these things. This is exactly what it has to look like. No, this is what the Bible would ask us. Husbands, here's the question. How can I express initiative toward my wife this week? How can I express loving initiative to my wife? Husbands, how can I express sacrificial love that costs me and benefits her this week? The headship of Jesus to the church is costly. So how can I love her in a way that benefits her and is costly to her? This is what it means to love your wife as Christ loves the church. Here's a question for you men. How can I lead spiritually in our relationship? How can I share the word with her, pray for her, listen to her, draw her out, care for her spiritual needs? Here's another question. Husbands, where do I need her strength to help me? If she's called to be your helper, where do you need her strength and how can you humble yourself and ask for strength? Because when you ask for help, it means I need. It points out a weakness. So it takes humility to receive your wife's calling as a helper. Wives, here's the question for you. How can I support my husband's initiative? How can I be supportive of his lead? How can I joyfully follow his lead? If he's taking initiative in any way, maybe he's bumbling along. Most of us do most of the time, frankly, okay? So even if he is, how can I affirm and celebrate and joyfully lean, in, lean into my husband's care for me and leadership? How can I bring my strength to help him in a way that builds him up rather than tears him down. Ladies, you can bring your strength, your abilities, your gifts, your perspective, your insight, um, your godliness. You can bring that to your husband in a way that is demeaning, like this guy can't do anything, or you can bring this in a way that is supportive and unifies you as a couple corresponding to one another. How can I build him up? Here's another question. How can I demonstrate and show my respect for my husband this week? And that's a question for a husband to his wife as well. But specifically, the Bible makes that call in Ephesians 5 to wives. Both of you, how can we glorify God in our roles together? Are we seeking to grow in our roles, affirming equality as image bearers, affirming our union as called to rule, to be co-regents, ruling over the creation is what is, is Genesis 2. And how can we benefit from one another's role together as one flesh? We look to Christ who modeled this. Husbands, look to Christ, loving sacrifice. Wives, look to Christ, loving submission to his father. Everybody look to Jesus. This display of the gospel glorifies God and shows to a watching world. It, it corrects the, uh, it really corrects the sort of caricature that they have of the church and the caricature of males and females and the caricature of marriage. And where we've contributed to that, well, let's repent and be different and show Jesus to people by the way we live. So God creates man and woman equal in dignity, worth, and value to be uh, image bearers of him joins us together as one flesh and gives us distinctive roles that correspond to one another so that we can glorify him and preach the gospel with our words and demonstrate the truth of the gospel with our lives. And the point in Corinth is when they were coming to worship, some of the freedom, they were mistaking the freedoms they had in Christ to say, well, hey, we can, let's just don't appear different 
in our gender, but that is a gift from God, and we celebrate His gifts. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.